The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Man stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, America. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you're having a. Normally, I come behind this mic and say, I "Hope you're having a great week," or "Hope you achieved a lot of things." But as you know better than definitely me than this outsider, it's been a tough couple of weeks in America. We have a jam-packed show for you today. I want to I want to talk to you today. Initially, I want to talk to you about the evil you've seen in your country over the last couple of weeks. I want to talk to you about the evil. I want to talk to you how people seem to want to respond to it in certain ways. And I want to ask you a tough question at the end of it. We're also blessed today to be joined by Tim Ballard. Um, he is the founder of Operation Underground Railroad. Um, in case you don't know these, this organization and Tim, he's a wonderful guy, um, great organization, and they are rescuing kids from sex slavery. But we'll get to that in about five, ten minutes, because I have a couple of thoughts I want to share with you. It seems in this world we live in, whether you're in America, whether you're in Europe, whether you follow events in the Middle East... It seems it's becoming a very common occurrence for our world to witness evil of the most horrific standards. We witnessed this a couple of weeks ago in New York City yet again. In that wonderful city that's vibrant, that I think is quite honestly the best city in the world. I know a lot of my southern friends don't like when I say that, but it's changed. Yes, it has, but I I still love New York. I think it's the greatest city in the world. There's so much you can do. We saw it when pure evil orchestrated an attack, targeted the most vulnerable in society. And then we saw it last Sunday, yet again. We saw it down in Texas, in a small rural town, with a population of around 400 where a man went into a church, a place of worship, and decided to share his evil with the world. What is our response to it? What is the media's response to it? What is those in the public eye's response to it? Well, any time there is an attack in a public place, whether it's New York City, whether it's England, whether it's the world, we don't wait for facts to come out anymore. We have people who want to automatically assume it's terrorism. We have other people who go, no matter, even after the facts come out, it's not terrorism, it's not terrorism, it's not terrorism, it's not terrorism, it's not terrorism. 
And then when the facts do come out, and it is terrorism, oh, well, he was only a lone wolf. They were acting by themselves. It's not. It's nothing to do with Islam. It's nothing to do with Muslims. It's nothing to do with anything. It's just a lone wolf. Just He was acting by himself. In Texas, anytime it's not terrorism related, even though terrorism can be more than Islamic terrorism, they don't own us. Terrorism is terrorism, whether it's done by a, a Muslim, uh, an Islamist, a, a white supremacist, or a black supremacist, whatever it is. The response wasn't about the person. It wasn't, well, it's not terrorism, or it, it's not a, they're only a lone wolf acting by themselves. They're just crazy. It's, no, it's about the guns. It's about gun control. We have a problem in our society right now. The problem is we don't correctly identify evil. People like me get bashed when I say that we have a problem in our culture. It isn't a Muslim problem. It is an Islamo-Nazi problem. We have people in this world who are so evil, either by their words or by their deeds, who think it's okay to kill innocent people. They think it's okay to target the most vulnerable in society. We don't have a gun problem. We have a heart problem. We have a mind problem. We have a culture problem. It's time the world steps up and identifies evil by its name. Whether it's terrorism in New York or in Europe, where it is Islamo-Nazi-Fascist, whatever word you want to call it, it is an Islamist problem. It is not a Muslim problem. It is not, let's just throw everyone under the same bus. Because, just let me make this about our Blaze family. If you make it a Muslim problem, you're throwing people like Zudi Jasser into that. Zudi Jasser is one of the greatest Americans I know. I don't agree with him on everything. But he knows. He quotes John Locke. He quotes the Founding Fathers. It is not a Muslim problem. It is an Islamist problem. With events that we saw in Texas, it is not a gun problem, it is a heart problem. We need to correctly identify evil in our society, each and every opportunity we get, because there is evil. But what is our response to it? Because I found it so sickening as I watched some people respond to the most recent events in Texas. It seems that America, in the media and in the people in certain corners who have a publicity or have a bit of fame, they think it's okay to act a certain way. We see religion and religious people under attack. It's now, oh well, thoughts and prayers aren't good enough, it's time to act. When you, it's okay to mock it, Don Lemon. Well, don't talk to me, don't get on to me about anti-religious. Well, then don't sound anti-religious. Sometimes thoughts and prayers are all people can give. But we are now openly mocking God. But what I found even more sickening was, was a, I don't know what she is, an actress or a comedian or whatever label she wants to go under. Chelsea Handler. P- 
people that she has a, an audience to, people listen to what she has to say. I don't know why, but she does. She didn't even condone the, the, the terror attack in Texas. She didn't even say her, you know, her thoughts were with them and that they hope people wake up. No, she went into full political mode by saying it's all about the GOP and the GOP has blood on their hands. This is the response that you're seeing. But even more so, we are seeing a culture where it does not value life. It does not value life right now. Everyone, every time I do a show on abortion or on, on euthanasia, everyone goes, shh, John, don't talk about that. Don't, shh, don't talk. It's too controversial. I'm sorry. Is life not precious? We are seeing a culture where life is not precious. We are seeing it with babies. We are seeing it with elderly people. We are now seeing it with Down syndrome. But the same people who won't defend us or won't condone that will be the first ones to lecture me about Hitler being a bad guy. I know. I've spoken about him a lot. Hitler is not a good guy. You know who else wasn't a good guy? Stalin. You know who else wasn't a good guy? Mao. You want to know who else was not a good guy? Posh. You want to know who else is not a good boy? There are plenty. There are plenty. But what I find so incredible about the world we live in, Chelsea Handler sees the horrific acts in Texas and goes straight into attack mode. Her very next tweet was promoting abortion. We have two problems in our culture right now. One, we do not correctly identify evil. We do not call it out by its name. We do not respond to evil. And the second one is, we live in a culture where we do not value life. We do not think life is precious. We do not think life is a gift. That life is truly a wonderful thing. That each life has a purpose, has a meaning, has something that it can do that no one else can do. That each of us has a potential to do something amazing, to change the world. We are living in that culture. Now, how do we respond? How do each and every one of us respond? Trust me, I could find it very easy to get behind this microphone today and be angry. I, I, could, I could make the argument, well, to those people who want gun control, well, your law didn't work with this case in Texas. What makes you think another law will work? I could get on and give you all the stats about gun control in places in Europe and Ireland and the rest of the world. I could get very angry about it. I could get very righteously angry about the Constitution and the right to bear arms. I could get angry about Don Lemon and Chelsea Handler. I could get angry all day long. I could focus in on the evil. But today's show, I don't want to focus in on the evil. Because when we talk to Tim Ballard in a few minutes and I share this interview, and by the way, on this interview, you're not going to hear me talk a lot. Because I didn't. It, this interview is not about me. It's about Tim and his wonderful organization. And I hope you listen to him and try and support him. It is so easy to focus in on the evil. But every time there's evil, it is an opportunity to do good. It is an opportunity to change the world for the better. I know that sounds sick, 
But we can focus in on evil. It's the easiest thing you'll do. But how about we focus in on the good? Last weekend, we saw an act of pure, pure evil. But two men, two ordinary Americans, doing extraordinary things, stepped up. Stephen Williford and Johnny Langendorf, who saw it and who went after it. We saw it in New York City with the policemen. People ask me all the time, why do I finish this show the same way each and every week, saluting heroes in society? Because I really do salute heroes in society. We have heroes all around us. We just don't recognize them. Stephen Williford and Johnny Langdorf don't want to be called heroes. That is usually a sign that you are a hero. Because you're humble. It's not about you, it's about a bigger picture. Their interviews were amazing, just reading the transcripts where they thank God for the skills that they had. Amazing. Heroes. Heroes don't wear a number on a jersey. They just do ordinary things, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Police. After that terrorist attack, when everyone else is emotional, they have to go and do their job. They might have to, you know, arrest someone. They might have to, you know, build a case to ensure that the prosecution can actually do its job to put this evil behind bars. They have to act with a clear conscience. They have to act by a code, even though their every impulse in their body is like, I just want to tear this guy apart. They have to do things a certain way. That is a real hero. Stepping up when no one else will. Also, when I'm talking to Tim in the next segment and the next for the rest of this show, it's so easy gonna get so easy to focus in on the child sex slavery. These kids who are raped ten, twelve times a night, who are very young. It's easy to focus in on that and be outraged, and trust me I was. My mic was on mute for a lot of the time at the interview because I just couldn't. I, you would have heard me just go um, gasp and, and groan quite a lot. But we can focus in on the evil and our response can be anger. Or we can look at men and women like Tim Ballard with the sex slavery, with Operation Underground Railroad, with all the people around him who are making a difference. The heroes in society. What is our focus going to be? When I come back, I would ask you just to, to, to sit and listen. Because I share an interview I hope Tim enjoys. Because I focus in on him and his journey first. And then we focus in on on his organization. And then, yes, you asked a load of questions. In the last segment of the show, I get him to answer your questions. Because this show is not about me. It's about each and every one of you. It's about making a difference. We will, in future shows, correctly identify the enemy. We will correctly identify the faults and the issues in society. But we will also be a show that props up those who are making a difference, who supports them, who puts a shining light on these men and women who are making a difference for the betterment of our society. To focus in on the good, to give me hope, if for no other reason than to give me hope, but to give each and every one of you hope. Because America's best days can still be ahead of her. But only, only if good men and women who are very ordinary people do extraordinary things. Don't go anywhere. When I get back after this quick break, America, 
We will talk to Tim Ballard. Don't go anywhere. Freedom versus freebies. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn. On the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Freedom's Disciple On Demand On the Blaze Radio Network Thank you so much for sticking with me, America As I announced last week, we have made some changes to our show So this show goes out every Saturday at noon Eastern um, On SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play Music and Stitcher But also what we're doing going forward is Every Monday, about 12 noon Eastern We're releasing the four segments of each show Just so you can listen to it all in one go at the weekend if you wish Or if you want to break it down into chunks um, 10, 12, 15 minute chunks each week You can listen to it, it's free Please share it with your family and your friends It's on SoundCloud iTunes, Google Play Music, and Stitcher. So, as I said to you in the first segment of the show, today's very much going to be about, we, we spoke about the evil atrocity that happened in Texas last weekend, about the evil we're seeing in the world. But I think it's important at times like this that we highlight good about people who are really making a difference in the community. And I'm so honored to be joined today by a Blaze, um, part of the Blaze family, and he's very much connected with Glenn Beck, as you know, if you followed him. He's an author. He's the founder of a great charity and organization called Operation Underground Railroad Rescue. Tim Ballard, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's awesome. So I wanted to just talk to you because we're seeing one of the things I try and focus in on my show is there's this myth in society today that there are no heroes and there are no good people. The world is filled with evil. Um, and it is filled with evil, which we can talk to you. You can probably t- testify to that better um, than maybe most in what you and your organization see. But what I want to try and do is share your story um, about people who are making, just ordinary people making an extraordinary difference, that vision of America. So you grew up in California, is that correct? That's right, Southern California, yeah. So what was your family life like back then? Because obviously California has made major changes over the last t- 10, 20 years. What was your family like growing up? Uh, you know, I had a real supportive family, great parents um, who uh, made us the focus of their lives. And and uh, I'm I'm the second of six of six kids. And um, uh, you know, it's 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 funny. My my parents will tell you I was always kind of like this paranoid kid. Um, you know, I was always looking for I was always looking for the danger. I was looking for the monsters. You know, I lived in a nice area, a nice um, you know a, a, a nice you know community. But I was I was the one that would stay up until you know everyone went to sleep and check the doors and windows one more time. So it was just kind of in me to look for <laughs> to look for bad guys who were trying to hurt people I love. <laughs> okay, awesome. So then you obviously schooling was very different. Were you big into school or were you more into sports or what type of kid were you growing up? Um, you know, I uh, I did sports. Um, I uh, I wasn't a naturally you know bright student. I had to work really hard. Uh, but I, I did okay. I did pretty. I did. I did pretty good in in, in school, um, but it, you know didn't didn't really come naturally to me. Okay. And then were you big into sports? Like, did you were you the 
were you the, the quiet guy playing at home or were you always out in the field and your parents were like, come on, it's 10 o'clock, you got to go to bed, come on in, do your homework? Or what type of kid were you growing up? I was, I was, um, yeah, I had a lot of energy. I was, I was out, uh, um, I was a kid out late getting in trouble. I probably got in trouble more than my siblings. Uh, but I was very active. Uh, I was outgoing. I, I, I played uh, baseball and basketball in, in, in high school. Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of how I, how I did it. <laughs> uh, you're, you're not a Dodgers fan by any chance, are you? You know, I, I, now I don't have time, but I absolutely was a Dodgers fan, you know, back, back, in, the, back in, the, in the 80s when I was growing up in Southern California and L.A., uh, definitely a big Dodgers fan. <laughs> well, uh, on behalf of all my Blaze family down in Texas, uh, I, they apologize, but uh, they, they're too busy enjoying their championships. Um, so well, I have to, I have to tell you, I, I rooted for the, I rooted for the Astros. Um, I just because of of what happened, I thought it, what a wonderful thing to to have them win this year. So, um, to all my family, I'm sorry for admitting that, but I was rooting for the Astros. Well, as a Yankees fan, I was I was rooting for the for the Astros as well, even though they beat us. But you know, it's it's it was it was it's a great story, first championship ever. You know, after everything that's happened down there this year, it, you know, they those yeah. people deserve it just to give them a lift up. So, what was your parents' background like? You know, you obviously have a long list of you know type of service. Were your parents big in? You know, were they in the military? Did they serve, or what type of background did your parents come from? Um, yeah, not at all. They, they didn't. They were, um, my, my father was a, a real estate uh, developer. My, my mom was a teacher. My dad became a teacher later and a coach. My mom still still teaches uh, um, piano. She teaches music. And my father still teaches uh, down at the high school that I was at. Was at. So they're, they were very surprised and, and frankly concerned when I started telling them at a young age that I wanted to be a uh, an agent. I wanted to be a, a secret agent. You know, that's that was from a young age, and, and they didn't know where it came from because uh, we had no law enforcement, no military, military in our family, and they were trying to actually discourage it because they told me I was going to die if I tried to do something like that. Um, but it never left me, and I, I um, as I went into college, I, I continued to have that desire, and everything I studied in, in, in school and in grad school was was geared towards having a, a career in some kind of a uh, law enforcement or intelligence, you know, national security type position. So it was, it was, it was in me. I was almost born in me, I think. Okay. Awesome. So then you went to, uh, you went to BYU and then you uh, graduated cum laude with a Spanish and political science degree. That's right. I, I, um, after, after I finished my freshman year at BYU, I went on a two year mission, my church or service mission, uh, and was, was um, sent down to Chile in Latin America. So I spent two years there and loved that. I loved serving people. I loved um, learning the language and the, and the culture. So when I came back, it was natural for me to continue my, my, my language study. And I always wanted to go back overseas and, 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 and help people in need uh, internationally. I, I knew that I wanted to do that. So can you share some memories? Obviously, you know, taking a, a young boy and turning man from like California where it's, you know, obviously a totally different culture and, and you know, an American culture and to going into to Chile and where, you know, you have poverty. What, what are the memories that you have to this day of that visit? Like what really stands out to you? Of, of being in Chile? Yes, sir. Oh, it was, you know, it was crazy. I mean, you're 19 years old. You're stupid as can be. You don't have any clue. Um, they teach you some basic language skills, uh, and, but you get down there, they might as well be speaking, you know, 
you know, ancient ancient Greek to you because you can't I couldn't understand anything and everything was different. It was it was it was it's crazy. You talk about growing up quick. You grow up you grow up real quick, um, and just kind of thrown thrown into the situation, seeing things you've never seen, and, and trying to trying to help people and and, um, and 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 talk to them. And it was it was very eye opening. It was it was the greatest experience. So. Uh, because it was the first time I saw, like I said, I grew up in kind of an affluent area and, uh, looking for monsters that weren't there, <laughs> you know, but here I was for the first time in a place where there were monsters, you know, there, there were bad things, you know, poverty breeds, um, so much evil. And, um, though there's beautiful part, parts of Chile, uh, I was generally always sent, I seemed to be sent to the places where there was a lot of poverty. And you just started seeing things. I mean, you, even things that I would encounter later in my life, but I, I didn't even know to call it trafficking, you know, or sex slavery. But that's I even saw some of that on my mission uh, to that area. And so I just came home with a burning desire to, to, to prepare myself and get a, a skill set that would allow me to go back down and kind of confront what I knew was evil in, in places far from where I grew up. Awesome. So then you come back, you do your, your master's in international politics, and then you, you do 10 years of service in the Department of Homeland Security um, and working in Internet Crimes Against Children. What made you was, obviously, what, what was the burning, what happened in your life? What was your turning point that kind of made you get there? Was, did Homeland Security get you into the Internet Crimes Against Children, or was that very much something you, you picked and you wanted to pursue? Great question. I actually did not want to go into anything to do with crimes against children. I, I studied it and my, my um, graduate degree was actually had an emphasis in terrorism and weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and that was before 9-11. In fact, 9-11 happened while I was still um, pursuing my, my, my master's degree. And so uh, when, when, when that happened, the, the doors were wide open for everybody in our school. Uh, the CIA was actually recruiting people right out of the school um, because our focus had been on terrorism. So my, my very first full-time job was actually at the CIA working on, on cases dealing with terrorism. And, and, um, and so that's, that's what I wanted to do. And then after 9-11, uh, we learned that some of the, or at least one of the terrorists had come, had come across the border uh, through Mexicali, Calexico, California, uh, from Mexico port of entry into the United States. And I thought, I want to be on the border. I speak Spanish. I love that Hispanic culture. I want to get on the border and chase terrorists. And so I left the CIA and I joined uh, what would become the, the Department of Homeland Security in the wake of 9-11. And I got down to Mexico, or I'm sorry, to, to Calexico in California, stationed. Uh, it, it, was a, it was my dream job. I, I had an office at the port of entry. My, my office literally looked into Mexico. To, I could see the Mexican wave flagging or flying um, from my desk, you know, and it was just like, we, we were going through tunnels and chasing drug money, chasing potential, uh, you know, terrorist situations. And I was just loving it. And, and about six months into this dream job, uh, I get called into my boss and he says that we are starting a child crimes unit. And, and that was a new thing. And this was the early, early 2000s. That was a new thing. You know, the, the, the U.S. government was leading the way, but still everybody was behind the curve on this one. Um, you know, no one really understood how, how deep this problem went, how pervasive really it was, this, this, this problem of taking children and using them as, as, as sex slaves. And I told my boss that, no, I would not do it. I promised my wife I wouldn't 
do that early on when I was, you know, at the academy. And, and I went back to my wife and told her, and she agreed that we weren't going to do this because the reason she gave me was because we have kids of our own. And I don't know what, you know, we didn't know what that would do to, to our family life, to our, you know, what darkness I might bring into the home. And so I had to get ready and prepare my rejection speech to my boss, who I didn't, I, you know, good guy, but I was scared to death of him. You know, he's this big cowboy, six four, white, big, you know, mustache, hook mustache, <laughs> cowboy boots to work. And I was just like freaking out, thinking I got to tell this guy no. And my wife came to me uh, in a in a very emotional state uh, that morning, and uh, apparently she had, she'd had somewhat of a sleepless night, and she said, "We're wrong. Uh, the very reason." that we thought we had to say no to this because we have kids. That is the very reason we need to say yes to this. If, if there really are millions of kids stuck in this, we know what childhood is supposed to be. We know what it is and how can we not do this? So I quickly changed my speech and I went in and said, yes, I'll do it. Went in very, um, you know, cautiously, uh, very apprehensively, uh, but went in and, and however dark I imagined that world might be, it was a hundred times darker. I couldn't believe the things I was watching, the, the videos and the, the United States is the largest consumer of child rape videos. And so we just spent a lot of time tracking down those videos and who ended up with them and, and, and putting them out of business and putting them in jail. Uh, and then the, really the, the transformative moment that I think, cause I always thought I'll get out of this. I'll do my time. I'll do two or three years and I'll get out. Uh, all that changed when one of the kids from the video um, ended up in our path. We actually were able to rescue this little boy who was the subject of child pornography, five years old. He had been kidnapped from Mexico by this man named Earl Buchanan. Uh, you can read about him. You can Google him. He's in jail. Uh, but this guy was taking kids from Mexico and, and bringing them to his home. And, make, and he had a, basically a child porn studio in his home, and he was making these videos and abusing children. And so I got this little boy and we got him out and, and, and it was the first time I'd met a real child. I, I had always just done the cases where the, you know, the videos, but here was, here was the kid. And at one point, as the dust was settling on that investigation, this little boy ran to me and threw his arms around me and just started shaking. And he was crying and he said to me, I don't belong here. And those words just cut me, just cut me to the center of my soul. And as he said those words, I, I, I saw those those, those, those images of him. And, and I thought, and I, and I multiplied his pain by 2 million, 2 million kids is what the estimate is out there that, that are stuck in this. And, and that was it. I mean, after I saw this kid, that was it. I was, I, I knew that I could never go back to doing anything else but this. And, and so from then on out, it was just how fast can I get to the problem? How, how many kids can I get to? So, the, you said your boss approached you. They were setting up this new division. Was there like a, a did something happen in the world that that you know America, the U.S. government said we need to set up this new division, or was it just a thing over time where it was just exploding with the you know the explosion of the internet and they said that we need to do this? Well, they've been doing the the U.S. Customs Service, which was the precursor basically to the Department of Homeland Security. They've been they've been leading the way in child pornography investigations for for, for years and years, um, but. But in the early 2000s, really, it's really the Internet. The Internet, with the, with the advent of the Internet and the, and the explosion of it, um, it, it really um, increased the, 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 the quantity, the, the, the amount of, of child rape victims. Um, child pornography became more pervasive. Sex addiction became, became more evasive. The demand shot through the roof. 
So more kids were, were in demand. And so it just became so prevalent that, um, that the, the U.S. Um, Department of Homeland Security decided it's time to really formalize this and start creating these groups. Um, in the early 2000s, that's also when the, 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 the Justice Department um, started out and created the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force, which is made up of state, local, and federal officers uh, in, in every major city in the United States so that we could all come together and join forces and bring the best solutions to the table. And so it was really in the early 2000s, really a boom of a recognition that there's a bigger problem than we thought. And so we need to bring a bigger solution than we thought. And I was kind of right at the, at the, uh, just happened to be there when all this was happening um, and, and was, was fortunate enough to be part of, of building new solutions and, and then doing things that we had never done before. So you spent about 10 years in, in that department what was the what was the moment in your life or what happened in your life that you kind of go, I'm doing all these things, I'm making all this good, I need to leave and set up my own organization? Can you talk us through what happened there? What what was your mindset? Sure. So in the mid-2000s, the U.S., uh, about 2006 or so, the United States Congress uh, passed a bill called the Adam Walsh Child Protect Act. And what it did was it, it did a lot of things, but one of the things it did, it seemed quiet on paper but was loud you know, in, in, in the field for us was it, it, it eliminated a, a, um, a requirement, a statutory, a statutory requirement in the law um, that dealt with people in, in the United States who would travel to foreign countries to engage in sex with children. Uh, before this bill passed, uh, the U.S. government had to prove that a traveler had the intent to rape a child in a foreign country while that traveler was standing in the United States. Um, which, unless the guy's taking a daily log, uh, would be impossible to prove. They eliminated that requirement. So you just had to prove that the guy, the, the, the citizen, the American citizen, left the United States and, in fact, engaged in, in, in raping, raping children. And so when that law changed, uh, they created, it, it opened a door for us, and, and the Department of Homeland Security, leading the way, started sending um, agents with expertise in this field into foreign countries to hunt down Americans. Who were who were looking who were who were hurting children, and I was one of the first kind of picks to go into Mexico and to go into 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 Latin America. And so when I did that, I all of a sudden the, the, these numbers—they say there's millions of kids. Well, that number, you know, was no longer just something I could just call a statistic and, and bury in my mind. There were faces attached to it. You know, it wasn't just a little boy at, at, at the port of entry. Now it was dozens and dozens of kids that I was seeing. And, and unfortunately, the, the vast majority of those kids fell outside the jurisdiction of the United States. No, no fault on the U.S. You know, I had to, if I couldn't find the American involved, then there was no U.S. case. And the U.S. government really couldn't do much. It would be illegal for them to do much, you know, much more. And so that's when the idea came to me. Like, you know, what if I could put together a private organization that... It didn't have jurisdictional limitations. We could be in the United States today and in Mexico tomorrow and in Cambodia on Thursday, bringing the tools to those law enforcement officers who needed it the most. And so this idea was in my head. I was scared to death to even articulate it, of course, because that would require me to go from the most, you know, comfortable position, you know, with, with six kids at home and, you know, it's a very secure job having a federal you know, being a federal agent and then thinking to you know, leaving that and going to a nonprofit but statistically is not going to be successful was a scary thought for me. Um, but kind of the thing that kind of broke me 
uh, was I, I learned about this little boy in Haiti who had been kidnapped at three years old, kidnapped from his church where his father was the ecclesiastical leader, uh, the pastor of the congregation. And I learned about this and, and, and I saw a picture of the father uh, in the, in the, in the news outlet that fell on my desk and I just broke my heart. I looked at this man and thought, who's helping you find your kid? Certainly the, you know, the Haitian government isn't going to be doing a whole lot because of the lack of resources. Uh, so I engaged it hoping I could make it a U.S. case. Of course I couldn't. And I promised this man, his name is Gesno Marty. I promised him, I said, I will do everything in my power to help you find your son. And um, when it came down to it, the only way for me to live up to that promise was to fulfill uh, the, the thoughts that had been, you know, stirring in my heart and mind for the previous year about leaving. And that was it. I, I, I jumped ship and went to Haiti to look for his son. Uh, and uh, we haven't found him yet. But as we search for this little boy, we have we've rescued dozens and dozens of kids on that island uh, in search of this little boy. Uh, we actually found his kidnappers and got them arrested. And we're still on the track on the trail. Uh, but, but that was kind of the beginning of Operation Underground Railroad. And, and now we're in 15 countries and, and doing these kind of operations all throughout the world. Awesome. Well, we're just going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about Operation Underground Railroad. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. You're listening to Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you so much for sticking with me, America. As we were just talking about, we're just talking to Tim Ballard. He's an author. He's part of the Blaze family. He's the founder of Operation Underground Railroad. He was just sharing his life story, and we've got up to about 2013, where he was in the in the CIA and in the Department of Homeland Security doing um, internet crimes against children. And he's left his own. He's left this comfortable comfortable job with his own family and set up a nonprofit. So when you set up Operation Underground Railroad, can you explain to our audience, um, just take us through a, a demo mission, if you if you will, you know, the, the steps that you go. How do you find it? You know, how do you set, you know, decide whether it's, a, you know, a mission is going to be successful or not? You know, how you coordinate with the local government all the way through, you know, what type of steps by steps, but in a demo mission, sure. if you could. Perfect. Yeah. I'll, I'll, so what we do is we show up. Uh, we, we always work with law enforcement. You know, people, people try to, uh, you know, accuse us of being, you know, the haters, of course, try to try to accuse us of being some kind of vigilante group. Uh, and we are anything but, I mean, we will not even enter a country unless we are coming in under the jurisdiction, under the permission, under the, uh, the, 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 the um, command really of the foreign jurisdiction. So what we do is we'll, we'll find uh, a trusted law enforcement agency uh, in, in the country that we, we know there's a problem. We usually, We'll go through our, our U.S. Embassy contacts, um, and um, and my team is made up of former Navy SEALs, former law enforcement, federal, state, local, and so we have a lot of connections and a lot of support from from the U.S. government. Who you know, while they can't necessarily engage head on in foreign cases, they can certainly support, and they're there to support. So they'll help us find the ones that they have deemed worthy, uh, not susceptible to corruption, and we'll meet with those prosecutors and those law enforcement agents, and we'll sit down with them and say, look. 
We are experts in finding children who have been kidnapped, trafficked, and exploited. We want to help you. Here's, let's say there's 12 pieces to, to the puzzle, you know, 12 tools. And, and with these, everywhere from infiltrating you know, the, the, the internet, social media, the dark net, um, how you can go in there and find child pornography, any from, anywhere from there to doing physical undercover operations, going in, using our you know, Western faces. Unfortunately, so many Westerners are the ones who are going to buy this, and so the traffickers flock to them. So we can be very, very effective uh, because we are uh, Americans, and traffickers are, are drawn to us, so we can save more kids that way. So we just lay it out there and say, what, what is anything here on the table would you like uh, us to employ for you? And they'll pick, they'll say, you know, how about this? How about a training? Our guys could use training and, and, and could you help us with some laptops? Cause we don't have laptop computers. You know, so we'll give them resources. Um, let's say they pick, you know, a lot of the countries say we want the, the more aggressive approach. Can we put you guys undercover? And so I'll give you a real example here. So uh, we, we were in Colombia and we did this and, and um, the, the police said, look, we're going to sign you up as informants. We we're signed up. We had embassy officials witnessing it, so everyone knew that we were basically informants uh, uh, for for the the the, the, uh, the, the CTI, which was the, basically the Colombian FBI. And they told us, they said, "Look, we believe that Americans go to this island that's off the coast of Cartagena. We'd like you to go sit on this beach and just see if anyone comes and offers you kids." So we, we took our position on the beach, where you know we have we have uh, Colombian law enforcement with us pretending to be the taxi drivers, but just close by. And we're sitting there with hidden cameras. And sure enough, it's just, you know, a matter of minutes, really, before we get offered 10, 11, 12-year-old girls for sex. And so we, we go back to the prosecutor and say, here you go. You, you were right. Your hunch was correct. The, these guys are selling kids. And then they instruct us, okay, call the guy back and tell him you want to have a bigger party. Um, and so we did that. And then he introduced us, this, this, this target introduced us to his boss, and his boss named Eduardo took us into his home in Cartagena and we sat and negotiated a deal. And he then brings in his recruiter who happens to be a, 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 a woman who's famous in town. Um, she's kind of the, the, the honey pot that brings the kids in. She's a, a former model uh, or not a, not a former model, but a model and a, um, a former Miss Cartagena. And what, and they explained to us how she goes around and recruits kids to her modeling agency and nine, 10 years old, it brings them in. Uh, and, and the parents think that, wow, the, you know, this opportunity is so great, but then she ends up kind of getting them ready, preparing them, uh, desensitizing them through, through pornography, possibly through, through uh, drug use and, and then kind of sends them to be raped for money. So that's we kind of learn how they do that. And then, and then we tell them, we want to meet all the kids. We want to meet, we want to have a party and test, test out your, what you have and, so they bring, they brought into this particular case up operation. We, we rented a house and they brought us, uh, you know, they brought us over, over close to 40 kids, you know, and we had about, so then we bring in our team. We have, we have our own 2025 operators, former Navy SEALs, former military, and they're pretending to be the party goers. So these traffickers bring the kids on, uh, on to our house. We put them in a safe room and we begin negotiating with, the traffickers. Now, the whole time, of course, the, the law enforcement um, is there pretending to be servers, pretending to be the pool boys, whatever. And they're armed and ready and they do the deal. And then uh, when the deal's done, the, the law enforcement decides they have enough evidence and boom, they call in the SWAT team and they come in and, and arrest the bad guys. Uh, the, the kids then get taken by the, um, uh, by the aftercare uh, program that we have already set up, prearranged, and those kids begin their healing. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a reputable aftercare program. Uh, 
So that's kind of an anatomy, a quick and a nutshell, kind of how it goes down. Um, I can tell you that story because that's what happens. There's, there's, I'm not giving up any secrets here because this is, this happens every weekend in every country, in every city almost. Right. So uh, there's other things we do that I wouldn't, of course, reveal in public uh, that, that, that I, I won't talk about, but, but there, there's an example of something I can talk about kind of how we, we just infiltrate these markets where kids are being sold. So paint a picture. So you're, you're, it's amazing to me. The, um, it just, as someone who's never been in this situation, but you know, you're, you're pretending to be on a beach and it's obviously beautiful weather if you're on a beach and you're just hanging out. And just, if you could paint a picture of the, what the person looks like, um, for the audience of the person who comes up to you and goes, and what do they say? How does the conversation go? Hey, you want to have sex with a 12 year old kid? How does that, how does that conversation progress? Like, I don't even know. I wouldn't, my mind can't even comprehend how you start that or, you know, what's the feelers to see if you're even interested. How does that conversation go? Basically just, just like that, you, you know, you'd be shocked how, how, how open these guys are. They just walk up and say, Hey, you, you want girls? And, and we, you know, we're very careful to, there's, there's laws of entrapment. So you kind of let them talk and don't do much talking. You say, well, well, what do you mean? What kind of girls do you have? And they'll just say that, that quickly. I got anything from 11 years old up to, up to 20. And that's how, and then you just say, well, tell me about the 11 year old. Do you have 11 year olds? Oh yeah. Well, tell me about them. And then, and then that's how it goes. Just, just, just like that. Just like they're selling, you know, <laughs> It's just like you're selling trinkets or, you know, hats or, or, or towels. It's just, it's just, it's just a product. It's, it's a commodity. That's how they see these kids. And would your, obviously you would with your training, but like a person like me who has no military or coffee or police experience, would, do these people stand out? Like, do, would you look at them? Would I look at them and kind of go, there's something dodgy about that guy? Or do they just totally blend in? They totally blend in. They, that, that's one of the strange things about it that, I, I've never quite been able to wrap my head around. I was I was sitting with a trafficker once I remember, and he just showed me these pictures of the girls he was going to bring that we were going to buy, and, and of course in a sting operation. And, and um, we finished the negotiation. And he pulled his phone out and says, "Hey, do you have any kids?" And I said, "No, I don't have kids. You know, I don't bring that into into my undercover, you know, persona." But he says, "Oh, let me show you my my daughter." And he pulls his phone up. The same phone he just showed me children with that he's going to sell to rape for money. He pulls that same phone up and shows pictures of his daughter. Who's not much younger than the girls. He just sold me. And oh, you look at this little bike. I just bought her. And she's so cute. I just thought, man, how do you do this? How do you compartmentalize like this? But that's what they do. I mean, they're businessmen and they, they have their business side and their, their dads and their, you know, their, their, their people with lives. And it's just something's happened to them where their, their souls have just been, corrupt or past feeling. They're just uh, dark, dark people. They can do this. Uh, but you know, it's, it's the love of, of, of money and greed and it's a, it's a market. There's a big demand for this. And so they, they, they enter that, that market. And do, do you get the sense from, obviously you have some interaction with them that do you get the sense like this is just a job to them or are they forced to do it? Or like, is there any, like you just t- just shared that story about that gentleman who showed you his daughter. Is there? Do you, do you ever get a sense when speaking to these people that there's any remorse or that they're doing something wrong? Or um, not, not usually. The, you know, the the business the business guys. No, I don't get that sense at all from them. I think they're they they simplified it. It's it's you know I've heard them even make justifications like 
you know, um, you know, all these, you know, I, I give those kids something, you know, they, I give them cell phones, you know, after they work for me, or I give them somebody almost justify like they're, they're, they're getting, this is good for them. Um, I do see remorse a lot in, in the, in the guys that we catch who are, who are sex addicts, who are, who are poor child porn addicts. Um, often I'd say most of the time they're, they're remorseful and they, they don't even know how, uh, they even got into this except they, you know, they tell this story of how they started with regular pornography and, 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 and like smoking marijuana that, that didn't do it for them anymore. They, they weren't getting the chemical reaction in their brain that they used to get. So they, so they graduate to, to a, to a stronger drug, if you will. In this case, they, they turn to child pornography just to get that, that reaction. And, 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 and all of a sudden they, they said, I, I turned into a monster. I, I got trapped in this. And next thing you know, I'm taking trips to Mexico or Costa Rica to find these little kids to have sex with them. Um, so a lot of times these guys are, are basically saying, I'm a monster. I'm glad I got caught. Take me away. I, I do see a lot of that on the, on the consumer end, but not on the supply side generally. Okay. So you, you obviously have met with a lot of people. You've traveled the world. You were just in, um, in DC. I think it was last week you were meeting with uh, Ivanka Trump and, and I think it was Orrin Hatch. What, when you, when you meet with people, um, and you meet with po even politicians or you meet with media. What's the response to this? The, the stuff you tell them. They are so passionate and energetic about getting it done. I feel like my job is to bring them the news from the trenches because th these are things that you're not just going to, you know, th these kind of stories aren't just going to fall in your lap. They're, they're in the dark. And, and that's one of the problems. And one of the great benefits to starting a, 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 pub, a, a private organization is I can now tell the stories in ways that I couldn't before. And the stories are important. Uh, and when I met with Ivanka Trump and with Senator Hatch, Senator, Hatch, Senator uh, Port, Portman and Senator Grassley and some others, I, I actually brought with us a survivor, uh, a girl who had been, kidnapped in Latin America and smuggled into uh, the United States. And she, from the age of 13 to 17, she was forced to be a sex slave in, 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 uh, in downtown, you know, Chicago. Um, and right here in our, in our own, you know, backyard. And I, I bring her, I also brought, um, guest Nomardi, who I told you earlier about the, the father of this little boy, I brought him and, and I bring them. So they see, look, this is real. These are real people. This isn't just some statistic that you read about, you know, from, from, from the United Nations reports. These are real people. Here's, here's their story. Here they are. Um, and, and that's the important part is telling the story. It's, it's just like, you know, when we, when, when America tried to, try, tried to eradicate, uh, unsuccessfully tried to eradicate the legal form of slavery, in this country for hundreds of years. Uh, but what was the final thing? It was the stories. It was the media. It's people like you who are doing podcasts and talking about it. Um, it was Harriet Beecher Stowe in those days. The, the, the media, of course, wasn't podcasts or the internet. It was books. And she wrote the book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and millions of people read it and, and said, what? Really? This is happening? And then the abolitionists, you know, like Frederick Douglass and, 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 and Harriet Tubman and, and so many others rose up and said, Look, I'm from that world. This is really happening. That's what created the movement. You know, when, when, when Abraham Lincoln in the, in the middle of the war, he met Harriet Beecher Stowe for the first time. Uh, it's her son reported that he, he bent down and, and, and shook her hand and said, and said to her, so you're the little lady that wrote the book that started this war. And, and that's what we need in essence, you know, a, a proverbial you know, war uh, against slavery. Uh, and it's going to start 
through awareness, which is why we bring these people, we bring the voices from the trenches. We are the voices from the trenches. We've been there to tell the story and let them know this is real. Let's act. And, and it works. I mean, uh, you know, the, the senators and, 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 um, and, and, and Ms. Trump, who, who very, she's already extremely knowledgeable uh, about the subject. This is a, this is a, a, a passion of hers already. Um, you know, they're ready to, they're ready to work. And, and that's why we're able to get this bill through the Senate. It's now sitting in the house. It's going to do amazing things uh, to, to help us rescue more kids. And just because uh, I've been around politics a long time and I generally dislike politicians, please tell me what you say is not partisan. It's, this is, this should be, this is not a Republican Democrat issue or a left right issue. Please tell me you don't get there. You do get that response where it's, it's a human issue. Absolutely. And that's, and that's the beauty of it. It's, it's actually, and we had Democrats, Republicans in, in the briefing, and we always seek to do that. This is a great, you know, beyond just rescuing kids, which in and of itself is, 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 is the ultimate goal. It's got a healing effect, you know, and Glenn Beck talks about this a lot. You know, um, it's got a healing effect when, um, when you can put an issue on the table where it, it, all of a sudden the D and the R disappear. And it's just like, wait, what's going on? And if you go back to the original Underground Railroad, that might be the first and maybe only group leading up to the Civil War where, where people dropped their petty differences. They, they forgot the color of their skin for just a minute. They forgot their, their religious differences and their, you know, everything else. And they put it all aside and joined hands, black people with white people, with, with every other kind of people, and said, let's go rescue slaves. And it's, it, you, you study the, the Underground Railroad and you recognize that's a, it was a beautiful thing. And, and people got on board and, and that's, it, it was a healing effect. And, and you know, we, we didn't call ourselves Operation Underground Railroad for, for nothing. We want to tap into that power, that historical reference, because we want to recreate that feeling in, in a time when there's so much divisiveness, especially right now, so much hate, you know, so much accusation, a lot of mostly false accusation. And just get, say, guys, stop. You know, stop. You know, look, I hate the, I hate those 6,000, you know, neo-Nazis who are horrible people. And, you know, I don't like them. But, but you know what? There's 6,000 of those in a, in a world, in a, in a United States of 300 million. There's probably 5 to 10 million pedophiles raping children right now. Among, but can we focus on those people and, and, and go get them and rip them out of society? Let's, let's join hands and do that, you know. Um, and so there's a healing effect, and, and, we, and, and so it's, it's a beautiful thing to see that. Awesome. Well, we're just going to take one more quick break, and then we'll be right back because we have a few audience questions for you. Don't go anywhere, America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Freedom's Disciple on Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. 
Thank you so much for sticking with me, America. This is the part of the show where you get to take control of the mic and ask him some questions. But before we do, there's just a couple of questions I just want to finish up with. So one of the questions, and I asked you this before, um, but I'd, I'd love your answer when I interviewed a couple of years ago, I asked you this, but one of the things that always, because I follow your work and I'm a huge supporter of yours, one of the things that always strikes me is you, you fo- on your website it always speaks about you know aftercare for the kids and all these missions. I, I don't see anything on on your site, or maybe I just haven't seen it, the aftercare for your staff. Because you come across, especially the, the men and, and the women on the missions who are on the ground, you see the most evil scum of the earth. How do you say say? What do you all do? How do you not, like, break down after, like, a mission where you see a kid, you know, a, a, a 5, 6, 10, 12-year-old kid that's gone through horrific, you know, been raped and, and drugs and stuff like that? How do you stay sane? You know, we do break down, to answer your question. I mean, uh, we we ha- we actually have a um, um, uh, a mental health specialist pro bono, basically on, you know, on staff who sees all my guys, we all get, we all get help that way. Um, and we do break down. It's, 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 it's interesting. You know, I'll be, uh, I'll be sitting, especially when I have several operations back to back, it'll be maybe a month after an operation and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll have steeled myself. Okay. Until I'm sitting in a movie. I mean, I remember I was sitting in an, in an Adam Sandler movie and <laughs> with my wife just sitting there watching and something, I saw something in the movie that was totally not even about trafficking, but something just triggered and boom, I'm just bawling. I'm just sitting there bawling in the theater. My wife, you know, just grabs my hand. And, um, and these things, these things happen to us. We have those breakdowns and we have to, we have to stay healthy. Everybody has their own things they do. I'm, 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 I, I'm a, I'm a, a big uh, believer in God and in my faith plays a huge role in my healing. Um, you know, I, I, I turn to prayer uh, I have a great family who, who prays with me and stays with me. And, and, um, you know, and then, and then of course the, the, the professional help that's available to us and all my team has to do with that. It's, 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 it hurts. It's a, it's a tough place to, to be. It's a tough place uh, to work in. Um, and it's bittersweet, you know, when we try to focus on the sweet part, you know, it's, it's, you got to wade through the sewer to get to these kids, but when you get them and pull them out, you know, you just focus on that. And then that is so powerful it's so full of of light and joy that it's that that in and of itself becomes uh, a healing ointment and then i'm guessing on the flip side of that as someone who has a lot of veteran friends um and not getting political or you know but america hasn't had a great history and since day one of treating your vets very well i'm guessing that the, there's a sense of mission and purpose a new sense of mission and purpose for those vets who are on the ground that you know are not in the military anymore but they have that code and that brotherhood I'm guessing that on the flip side that they really appreciate that. They do. Absolutely. We have a lot of, 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 of veterans. They, they frankly make some of the best operators we have. And, and, if, and they do, they, they, they recognize that we, we make a big deal about making sure they have what they need. And, you know, we try our hardest to, to, to provide that for them. Awesome. And then one last question before we get to the audience questions. I see um, you're starting to make some breakthroughs. You you have a you've just in the last week or two had a partnership with Mike Tomlin and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Do you want to share to with the audience what that's about and what's that going to do and what y'all going to do together? Absolutely. So, like I said before, this 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 isn't going away until we get everybody in the world involved. Millions of people need to rise up. That's how this is going to end. His history teaches us that. That's how bad things. 
plagues, you know, that, that affect millions, that's how they go away when millions stand up. And so we were just so, so blessed to receive a call many months ago uh, from Mike Tomlin of the Steelers, who, who happened to see something uh, in the media about us. His wife saw something and, and he called us and said, this is it. You know, we need you guys. Uh, we want to help you guys. They brought us out. Um, let, they let me address the entire team um, and basically dedicated their season to us. You know, he, he told his team, he said, look, let's win the Super Bowl this year. Let's get in and win it for this cause. You know, and then we can leverage the publicity we get to, to, to shine a light on this and get more people converted. Uh, this is a true believer in the cause. And also a man who, who, who does not like the divisiveness that he's seeing in the NFL, which frankly is a microcosm of what's going on in the United States. And he, he actually taught me some of the things I just expressed earlier to you uh, about why he, you know, the Underground Railroad and, and you know, about the, how great this is to, you know, let's remove this, this cancer of hate and divisiveness, but let's replace it with something wholesome and righteous and full of goodness and light. And, and that can be this cause. And let's heal, let's heal the nation and, and, and rescue kids together. So um, the whole team, they, they wear OUR swag and, you know, they, they're wearing the OUR hats and they're talking about it. Uh, many, many members of the team have, have already donated significantly to, to our operations. And it's just kind of a grassroots thing that they're, they're just getting the word out and helping where they can. And it's, 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 it's becoming a very powerful force for good for us. Awesome. So some quick questions from the audience. One, um, where is Ground Zero or the most popular place for what you do in the world? Where's the biggest hotbed for child um, sex slavery? If I had to put a, a finger on the number, you know, I'd, I'd probably go to Southeast Asia. I'd go to, to, to places uh, in, in that region. India, the numbers are enormous. Um, but, but really, I, I wouldn't focus on just one area. It's any, any, anywhere. I mean, even here in the United States, there's 250,000 uh, children forced into commercial sex trade. There's thousands of kids added to that evil list um, uh, every year uh, that are smuggled into the United States and forced into it. Uh, so here in the United States, it's, it's, it's pervasive. Um, outside the United States, I mean, you, you can go to any, any third world country, especially where there's a resort town, and, and you're going to find it. If you know who to, where to go and who to ask, you know, you'll find it within, within an hour or two. Um, it's just that pervasive. It's absolutely everywhere. I mean, you think about it, there's 2 million kids. And, and, and what's scary about that number is you've got to consider what, what, what number, you know, in terms of demand, what number justifies that, you know, that, that, that amount of kids? There has to be a lot of men who want this. And, and, and there are, there's millions. And so they're, they're everywhere, they're in every country, and they're traveling, and they're mobile, and we have to come up with ways to catch them. Number one consumer. The, number one we need the top two or three, obviously it's not, you know, it's not scientific. We're not holding you to a number, but just to give a sense of who's, you know, number one or two consumer of this. Of child pornography is, is the United States. Yes. Wow. Um, so quite another question. What are some of the things parents need to look out for as far as trafficking in our own communities and how do we fight against it? You know, mostly in the United States, it's, it's a more sophisticated game. Uh, law enforcement here is, is, is top-notch, leading the world. Uh, and so, of course, um, the, 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 uh, the bad guys here in America are going to be more sophisticated. So a lot of what happens is online. Um, there's predators online looking for our children, trying to hunt them down. I've been undercover online on many, many occasions. I know how fast it happens. You know, I can go on. I've, I've, I've gone on before online as a, 
as a 12 year old girl, you know, just to see how, and then boom, these guys are on me so quickly. You go into the wrong chat room or, or uh, I guess chat rooms aren't really a thing anymore, but the wrong social media platform and boom, they're there. Um, and so parents need to know that, you know, our, our, our parents today would never let their 12 year old daughters go, go clubbing or bar hopping on a Friday night, but, but they will, many of them let them have full, you know, unfettered access to, to the internet all night behind a closed door. And, and I would say to a parent that can be just as dangerous, frankly, more dangerous, you know, just because your kid is safe in his room or her room, you're, you, you, you've given them a portal into hell. And with two or three clicks, they're all of a sudden talking to some guy who they think's a cute, a cute football quarterback from the next town over, but it's not. It, it's it, it's likely a, a pedophile who's trying to lure your, lure your child out of the home. And we see this all the time. So parents need to be aware and, 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 and put those controls uh, on their kids and, you know, have them turn their phones in at night. Like I have my kids, they get to charge their phones in my bedroom. You know, at, at nine o'clock, ten o'clock, whatever. You know, their 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 phones are with me. Uh, we have to put those kind of filters. But talk to our kids. Our kids are smart, but they just don't know the danger. So tell them, look, don't talk to someone that you don't know who it is. Don't go to websites. You know, just you can be tracked. You know that kind of stuff. So it's 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 really important that we open that dialogue with our kids. Awesome. Um, how deep does the the child porn um, and sex slavery go? Like, is there a certain criteria of people who, who want this? Like, is it type of, you said earlier on about addicts and they started off with, you know, drugs and then it just kept going and, and going? Or can it be anyone? Like, could it be, could it be like a politician or in the media or, you know, someone, you know, like a lawyer? Like, you know, the last person you in society might think would be in this. Exactly. And that's why it's so hard. There is no profile here. I mean, we've arrested the most. Uh, apparently upstanding citizens. I mean, we've professionals of all kinds, doctors, lawyers, teachers, professors, law enforcement, even um, there's in my career, I've had to arrest three different law enforcement officers who were engaged in, in, in child sex crimes. So it's, it's anyone, it's everyone. And so everyone needs to be aware and, and work to stay away from things that can make you a sex addict, frankly. Um, and and it's, it's an unpopular position to take. Uh, you know, because pornography is so pervasive and so normalized. And, you know, it's, it's not that every person who looks at porn is going to become a pedophile far from it. Uh, but, but enough will become, you know, addicts and, and need the next drug, need the next hit and, and progress on to something more dangerous and start looking at children and then boom, they're, they're stuck in it. And, and so people need to be aware of, of the power of, of images and how, and how those things can really mess with your brain and turn you into a monster. Um, I hate asking these questions, but you, you said several times during the interview about, you know, women and girls. I'm guessing there's, with the, the culture we're living in now, you know, there's young boys in this, and it's not all, is, have you ever arrested any women who have been after, you know, sex from a, from a kid? Yeah, I, I personally never have. It, it is the vast majority are men. Okay. Uh, I definitely many. There's plenty of cases, though. Of, of women being involved. Oftentimes the women that are involved are um, working with uh, one their, their, their boyfriend, their husband, who, who, who's a mega pedophile and has kind of converted or coerced uh, the woman into it. It's, it's for some reason, I don't know the science behind it, but for some reason women, I think aren't so much wired that way uh, to, to, to be, to turn, to turn that, that kind of, to turn to that kind of darkness. Uh, it mostly is men. Okay. 
Um, and then if you could just, I know you, we touched on it earlier on about your aftercare, but, you know, there's a big concern, you know, obviously with different addicts, you know, drugs that you eventually, you know, that you'll re- repeat and go back. The kids that you rescue or that are rescued even by organizations like yourself, that what do you do to ensure they're never resold back in, that they, you know, they're not rescued today and then they go through a program in, in a couple of weeks and then, you know, six months or a year from now they're resold and they're back to where they were in square one? Yeah, great question. And we, our aftercare program is the most important part. I mean, we, we won't even go into a country until we know up front where the rescue kids will go to. We have that set up. We have it set in stone in place. Um, and we only work with very reputable, uh, private, you know, privately funded um, organizations who have the expertise, who can provide not only the basic needs, but, pro- but provide uh, the, the, the aftercare necessary from education to, to therapy if required, um, the opportunity to, 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 to choose a different life and a different occupation. Um, so, I mean, we'll spend year, we'll spend months, even up to a year. In one case, I remember we spent that long setting up the aftercare part. We'll find, we find partners. We don't reinvent the wheel. We find partners who are already in these countries. And if they're not at, at where they need to be for us to come in and operate with law enforcement, we'll, uh, we'll make them ready. We'll, we'll give them support. We'll give them resources until they hit the standard that we are, that we are comfortable with. And then we'll go in. Um, these, these aftercare partners must have the ability to take these kids and, if necessary, raise them in, into adulthood uh, because too often um, there is no place for them to go. There is no family for them to go. And if there's no place for them to go, like you just suggested, they might end up right back into the problem. So we put, we put a lot of, of attention on the aftercare side. It, it is the most important side. Awesome. So I want to run a scenario by you just real quick um, before I let you go. This is actually a scenario that actually happened in my neighborhood. So there was a, a guy who um, whose parents are in the in the neighborhood where I am in Ireland, and uh, he they you know in Ireland's a very much different culture. It's kind of like a, a small town in America. In some ways, where we live is you know it makes local news. You know if someone gets arrested or someone does something wrong, everyone knows the whole. It's the news talk of the town. Well, this family's son. Um, who wasn't, he, he was a man, he was in his, I'm going to say, 30s, 40s, um, was arrested, and he was viewing, um, I think it was something like, he, we worked out the maths because of the case, he was viewing child porn every 10 minutes every day, um, because over a long period of time, that's what we worked out on average. And some people just went, and I'd love you to respond to this, He's look. He's just getting his kicks his way, and it's his privacy. And you know, it's just you know he likes looking at little boys, and I don't want to know, and I don't need to know what they were doing to each other or what they were doing. But they were just getting his kicks. He's doing nobody any harm. Yeah, that's a very dangerous. I would. I'd say it's an extremely dangerous position. Uh, It's a it's a wrong position. Yeah, it's it's they they just they're just not thinking the next step ahead, which is this. That boy in that video was raped, was molested for his enjoyment because there is a demand, because there are people like that man, because of that, that is the reason why the trafficker kidnaps the kid or lures the kid and hurts that kid sexually so that that guy can get his satisfaction. It is not a victimless crime. He is the demand. He is the reason children are being raped. So I would say that man needs to go to jail, and those people need to have a lesson in humanity. Well, you'll be glad to know the Irish justice system is very just. He got out with parole. 
<laughs> well, that's, that's not comforting. <laughs> <laughs> um, but sadly, these stories... Um, but he does have to sign on once a week in a, in a police station over here, I think for a year or maybe two. Um, so that's, that's justice for you. Um, last question before I let you go. How can people help? How can people find you? What do you need... Um, what do we need to do to make this into more of a national conscious, not just in America, but in the world? What can we do to help you? Well, to answer that question, I would say that the first thing is I want people to be converted to the cause. I want people to believe that this is real. I want them to then have their hearts in this, you know, and, and, and then we, then I'd make an ask or I'd have them figure it out. What, what can they do? Um, they can go to our website at OURrescue.org and learn about us. Watch our videos. We do everything we can to film the rescues, to show them this is real. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the problem we face is people don't believe it or they don't want to believe it. And so we kind of just say, look, this is real. We want to show you. Here's the real footage. Here's the kids. You know, so long as our law enforcement partners are okay with it, we show what we can. And then what I found is once, once people know and they're willing to invest a little time into learning, once they know, they become converted. It becomes their passion. And then they're telling us what they're going to do. You know, hey, I, I want to do this. I want to do that. Um, when someone asks me, what can I do? I just, I tell them, you tell me what you can do. You, you'll know before me, but go educate yourself first. Go to our website, go learn about the problem. And then they'll come back and say, Hey, I want to put on a, a, a gala for you. Or, or I want to, um, I want to get involved in the political side and, and help get this bill passed. You know, and then we work with them to do that. But, but first and foremost, get educated, get passionate. And the only way you're going to do that is by learning about it. And one great way to learn about it is to go to our website, OURrescue.org. That's OURrescue.org. They're also on, on Facebook, on Twitter. Give them a like, give them a follow. Tim, look up Tim Ballard. He's a great guy. And I would ask you as a personal favor to this audience, you know how I work. Please keep him in your prayers and everyone because these guys do amazing work. And I worry for their souls, how they face this evil all the time. Tim, thank you so much for, for joining us today and, and good luck on all your mission and your future missions. Thank you so much for supporting us. Well, there you have it, America. What a wonderful guy. What a wonderful organization. Please consider supporting him. Check him out. Do your research. It's OURrescue.org. I want to thank you so much for tuning in today. Please consider sharing. If you don't share any other show, um, with your family and your friends, please consider sharing this one. Sex slavery is not a left-right issue. It's not a Christian or an atheist issue or a Muslim issue. It is a world issue. It is a human issue. And it is one that we must stop by our actions, by our prayers, by our support, by our donation, by raising awareness. We must be the generation that says sex slavery is not okay ever. I want to thank you so much for tuning in today. You can get this show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play Music, or Stitcher. Just look for Freedom's Disciple. New show coming out next weekend, which I'm really excited about. Have a wonderful and blessed week. And as always, we finish this show the way we finish each and every show, by saluting the real heroes in society, your police, your firefighters, your emergency personnel, and your vets, the men and women of all races, of all religions, of all backgrounds, of all identities, of all education levels, who risk it all 24-7 so we can live free. And lastly, I salute you, the great American people. Never, ever, ever forget, America is great because Americans are good. America is great because Americans are good. That means each and every one of you doing ordinary things, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Until next week, America, God bless each and every one of you, and God bless America. 
Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on demand. The Blaze Radio Network. 